in these days of holidays, we watch with the theologians a movie, an excellent movie, about uh, the life, an episode in the life of Fred Rogers, the host of famous Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And in one of the final scenes of this movie, there's a family gathered around a dying man. But they're trying to avoid the topic. They're having this small talk about around him. And Mr. Rogers visits them and says, to die is to be human. And anything human is mentionable. And anything mentionable is manageable. So this is a human thing to do. We should talk about it so we can handle it well. And I've been thinking about that line of the movie because I think it's true, but it's also untrue. It's true in the sense that we all have to die. That's a fact. And so it is true that it's one of the most human things to do. We all do it. We all have to exit through the forum, so to say. So death is a great human equalizer. We all stand, stand equal before the fact that we have to die. So since everyone has to do it, it's good to speak about it, to remember that we are going to die someday. The ancients would say, memento mori, remember that you are going to die. So we need to speak about it. As we speak about it, it becomes more normal, more manageable. Good. Yet, it is not true because to die is not human, in the sense that there's something wrong with it, something unfair with having to die. In another great line of the movie, this dying man who had lived a wrecked life says to his son, after finally after reconciling with him, he says, I'm so sorry, son. It's not fair, you know. I think I'm just now starting to figure out how to live my life. Why is it that it seems unfair that we have to die? Is it reasonable that we feel that way? Because we see that everyone dies anyways. Well, it feels unfair because in the beginning it was not like that. When God created us, he did not create death. The church teaches us that death came into this world as a consequence of sin. For example, we read in St. Paul, through one person, sin entered the world, and through sin, death, and thus death came to all. So it was not plan A, so to say, that we had to die. It came as a punishment for our sins. But even more important, it came also as a remedy for our pride after we had sinned. Because who can tell how far we would have derailed from common sense, from empathy and solidarity without the sovereign fact of death. Without that, without that line that we know we have to reach at some point in our life, how far we could go in our wickedness and pride and selfishness had we not had to die. In what kind of creatures we could become without that limit to human pride. Furthermore, it is through the radical defenselessness of death that God can perform his deeper purification in us. Peter Krift writes and says, God weakens us 
so that he can perform operations on us that would otherwise be impossible. This is especially true of death. Death is radical surgery. So through the human act of dying, God is doing something in us through that state of defenselessness that we have to go through. So death, in the one hand, is the great evil, right? The last enemy, the mark of punishment for sin. But Christ came to conquer that enemy, and he did. He died himself, went through it, and then came out victorious. Yet death is also the door to eternal life, to heaven. So it's wicked in the sense that we don't want to go through it, but at the same time it's the passage, the needed passage, at least for us as sinners, through which we can enter into heaven. It is the golden chariot sent by the great king to fetch his Cinderella ride. What happens when we die? Well, we can imagine death as a room that suddenly goes dark. In fact, as, as I was preparing this homily, I was tempted to turn off all the lights now. But then I thought it was going to be too intense. But all the lights are off. And we are in complete darkness. And then they're on again. So we go through this valley of darkness. But then we emerge after that passage. And when we emerge, our faith tells us that three things can happen. The first one is that we wake up to a surprise party. The lights are on, and we're welcome into this feast, into this banquet of heaven. This is how the Catechism of the Catholic Church describes. It says, this perfect life with the most holy trinity, this communion of life and love with the trinity, with the Virgin Mary, the angels, and all the blessed, is called heaven. Heaven is the ultimate and fulfillment of the deepest human longings, the state of supreme, definitive happiness. So what your heart has been longing for, you find it when the lights are on. You are in heaven. Imagine, you're seeing the Lord. You're seeing Our Lady. You're allowed into the company of saints. There's so much joy, so much life, so much beauty, so much everything. Abundance. Scripture speaks about abundance of wine, abundance of joy. It's good to imagine. What are you going to say to the Lord when you see him? What are you going to say to Our Lady when the doors open and you're allowed in? The Bible uses many images to speak about heaven. Life, light, peace, wedding feast, wine of the kingdom, the Father's house, the heavenly Jerusalem, paradise. And St. Paul, who had a vision of heaven, he says that no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So we cannot even fathom the beauty and the joy of heaven. But we desire it so much. We are made for heaven. And some days we will see face to face 
what we now believe, or so we hope that that will happen. Because another possibility is that our lights are on, and then you're welcoming to this waiting room where you suffer because you are not at the feast. You see that happening, but you're not part of it. You realize the weight of your sins, the lost opportunities, the brokenness that your sins brought to your life and the life of those around you. And you're given the opportunity to repent completely. And you know that you have to do so, that you have to go through that purification before being allowed with the rest. We call this purgatory. The third option is that when the lights are on, you're found totally unfit. You don't belong to the feast, you don't get it, you cannot enjoy it, and there's not much that can be done about it. Benedict XVI, in his encyclical Spe Salvi, he wrote, there can be people who have totally destroyed their desire for truth and readiness to love, people for whom everything has become a lie, people who have lived for hatred and have suppressed all love within themselves. In such people, all would be beyond remedy. This is what we mean by the word hell. So this is a third possibility that Jesus speaks about, right? So heaven, purgatory, hell, three possible outcomes after our death. I think I'm not saying anything new, just reminding you of the things that we believe as Catholics. We know that these outcomes are not random, but are connected with the way we lived our lives. So can we hope for heaven? Can we really hope that we are going to go to heaven? What do you think? I think most people think I'd probably go to a purgatory. I'm not a saint, I'm not wicked, so probably in the middle, right? No, we need to hope for heaven. We are called to heaven. That's where Jesus wants us to be. He says, I'm going to prepare your room, and when your room is ready, I will come and pick you up with me. And then he says to the Father in John 17, Father, I want them to be with me in heaven, and I want them to see the love that you had for me right from the beginning. I want them to enjoy what I enjoyed from the beginning because he came to lift us up with him. Of course, we can have hope in heaven. Why? Well, now, not because of our own holiness or our own righteousness, but on the fact that God took upon himself our human nature. He came down to us to rescue us. He came down to our brokenness, to our sins, and, and, and lived among us without having sinned. But he took upon himself our weakness, our broken nature. He became one of us. He became our brother. He did not look down on us nor despise us, but lifted us up with him. So think about the implications of the incarnation. The fact that God came from heaven to us as a vertical factor in the story of humankind and also in our own history to 
restore us with his resurrected humanity. Scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who, who, who will condemn us if the same that is supposed to condemn us is the same that died on the cross for us? The baby in the manger that we're going to be celebrating soon is the same that was lifted up on the cross for our redemption. So we can claim his incarnation. We can claim that we are brothers with Jesus Christ. We can claim that he died for our sins. And that is the reason for our hope. We hope because God is good, not because we are good. We hope in God and in what he wants to do in our lives. And we hope in his power and his love and his mercy in our lives. But we also hope because we have faith. So faith and hope go together. They grow together, so to say. The more we have faith, the more we have hope. And we can see that we are growing, can we? We can see that God is doing something in us that regardless of our faults, of our shortcomings, we are moving forward. We are learning something. We are getting closer, aren't we? I think we are. When you grow in faith, you grow in hope. And when you grow in hope, you begin to desire heaven. At least that is what saints tells us. For example, St. Paul used to say, if I think about you, on you, I want, to, I want to stay, I want to work for you. But if I think about myself, I want to go to heaven. And St. Teresa of Avila, she would say, I die because I do not die. It's so good what I'm hoping for, that this life is like chains. Saints were so aware of the beauty, the weight of glory, that they wanted to die. That's a sign of growth. Because then death loses its darkness, so to say. It loses its fearfulness. And we, then we can really speak about it. Not because Mr. Rogers says so, but because we have the gift of faith and the gift of hope. Okay, the gospel reminds us also of another amazing truth today. Listen to this. When the feast in heaven is complete, in God's time, it will overflow towards us, towards this life. Heaven will conquer earth. There will be like a final cosmic event, something unprecedented, very noticeable. Jesus says in the gospel that every person in the planet earth will see, will see it happening. And the last judgment will take place. It will be an amazing manifestation of God's mercy and glory. It will be his final victory over sin and death. Justice and mercy will meet in that day completely, and it will be manifested. Let me read the catechism once more. It's beautiful. It says, the last judgment will come when Christ returns in glory. 
we shall know the ultimate meaning of the whole work of creation and understand the marvelous ways by which his providence led everything towards its final end. The last judgment will reveal that God's justice triumphs over all the injustices committed by his creatures and that God's love is stronger than death. We will get everything and we will rejoice in the victory of God. Something new will begin then. The Bible calls it the new heaven and the new earth. Creation restored, humanity living united in Christ and him being present to all and being present to each one. So Advent is about raising our hope. Hope in heaven and hope in God's victory in our lives and in the world. And it's about being reminded that we are pilgrims to God and that he will return. We heard in the gospel, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Listen, he came once, 2,000 years ago. It was prophesied that he was going to come and he came. We believe that, right? But then he said, I will come back. That doesn't have, hasn't happened yet. It will happen one day. Meanwhile, he's constantly coming to us. For example, the Mass is about him coming to us again and again. Through his word, he teaches us. Through his body and blood, he nurtures us. He's always present. He said that he would be with us until the end of the world, until this cosmic event in which he would be manifested. Let not worldly things or anything else distract you from this amazing truth that we are precisely invited to reflect upon in this holy season. And as a practical takeout this, for this week, whenever you're going from one building to the other or transitioning to your car or wherever you go, where you are out in the field, so to say, raise up your sight and look at heaven and remember this. Don't stay you know, with, with, your, with, your, with your sight on the floor. Jesus says, stand erect, raise your heads and remember all this truth that are so beautiful, so, that have so much light and have the power to transform us. We're going to now light the candle of Advent. Advent is a journey. We go from one Sunday to the other. This is the first Sunday. And we, as we do this with, with faith, we ask the Lord for the grace of being transformed in hope.